Hello, readers. John Feinstein is a number one New York Times bestselling author whose titles include the one we're talking about today, quarterback, inside the most important position in the National Football League. John, thank you for the time. How are you today? I'm doing well, thank you. John, what was your goal in writing this book? Well, that's a great question. My goal really was to explain to people why playing quarterback is not only the most important position in sports, but also in many ways the most difficult. I mean, obviously quarterbacks make big money. Uh, They're the highest paid players in football, without any question. But they have to go through a lot more than I think the average fan can see. And and, uh, because of the guys I worked with being willing to give me insight into their lives, not just the games they play, but into their lives, I think I came away, and I hope the readers will come away, with a better understanding of the pressures of, of playing the game. Doug Williams, who was one of the only one of my quarterbacks who was, is no longer active, first African-American to win a Super Bowl at quarterback, said to me that he's often asked the question, what's it like to be an NFL quarterback? And his honest answer is, I can't explain it to you. You have to live it to understand it. You have to understand what it's like to walk into that huddle and see 10 guys looking at you, expecting you to take the lead and take them down the field in the last two minutes of the game. You have to understand what it's like to recognize defenses, change protections, check off on a play, make decisions in two seconds after you take the snap, and to take the physical pounding that they take, and to get beat up off the field if they don't play well or if the team's not playing well. So there's a lot more that goes into it than just X's and O's and play calling. You mentioned Doug Williams was one of the subjects. You also chose Alex Smith, Andrew Luck, Ryan Fitzpatrick, and Joe Flacco, really following these guys around during the 2017 season. It's a great mix of guys, not only in terms of guys that people know about, but guys who are in very different situations throughout the season. Was that something that was intentional on your part? And, and I, the common thing, common thing that I was looking for was smart guys. I needed guys who would understand the project, understand why I was asking the kind of detailed questions I tend to ask, and who would be okay with that and be willing to answer. But again, you're right. I also wanted a cross-section. Ryan Fitzpatrick, Andrew, uh, excuse me, Alex Smith and Ryan Fitzpatrick were in the same draft in 2005. Alex Smith was the number one pick. Uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick was the 250th pick. That's a very different life going into the NFL. Going in, being expected to be a clipboard guy, or these days a headset guy, where you're on the sideline as the backup, or going in as the face of a franchise. And so I wanted that kind of cross-section. I wanted a guy who won the Super Bowl, Joe Flacco, and then had some failures since then and had to deal with the whole city of Baltimore kind of looking at him and saying, you know, you've let us down. Uh, Andrew Luck, I didn't choose him because he was going to be injured in 2017, although he was coming off of shoulder surgery, and I knew that. But it turned out to be an entirely different story than I had expected because he didn't get to play all year and went through a lot of emotional ups and downs, mostly downs for a long time, because he hadn't understood until he didn't get to play all of last year, how much of his identity was tied up with playing football. So, yeah, I wanted 
I wanted five smart guys, but I wanted five smart guys with different different experiences in the in the game. You just mentioned the difference in where guys were drafted, specifically Alex Smith and also Ryan Fitzpatrick. It, it begs a larger question of why is it so tough to project how good a quarterback is going to be in the NFL? Did you yeah. find any answers yeah, no, to that? Yeah, no, actually, no. Yeah, it goes back to Johnny Unitas, who not only wasn't drafted coming out of Louisville in the 1950s, but was cut by the Pittsburgh Steelers as a rookie. And you can go through history. You know, you can talk about Peyton Manning and Ryan Leaf, who were judged by most scouts to be roughly equal coming out of college. You can look at David Carr and Jamarcus Russell being the number one pick in the draft and bombing out. And then you can look at Tom Brady being the 199th pick and becoming Tom Brady. Uh, and I think the re- I, 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 while I don't completely understand it, I think the reason is certain things can't be measured. You know, the NFL tries to measure everything. They, they take you to the combine. They measure the size of your hand. They measure your speed. They measure your arm strength. They give you the wonderlick test. But in the end, you can't measure heart. And Bill Belichick told me the most important reason why Tom Brady is Tom Brady it, or there are two of them. One is decision-making, because you have to make so many split-second decisions as a quarterback. And two, your ability to communicate with your teammates. And Brady's gone through so many wide receivers and so many linemen and so many running backs, and the common thread is they all get what he's trying to tell them. And that's something you cannot measure, and that's why I think picking quarterbacks is so, such an inexact science. I think it's, it's a great question. John, some of my favorite stories from this book involved Doug Williams. Just how important was Joe Gibbs to Doug Williams as a football player and a person? Well, I think Doug, Doug would tell you that, that if not for Joe Gibbs, he, he wouldn't be who he is. Um, it was Joe Gibbs with an assistant with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, uh, came to Grambling to scout Doug, spent two days with him, went and watched him student-teach classes. Again, you're always looking for something a little different in a guy. Um, liked what he saw, convinced the Bucks to take Doug in the first round. No African-American quarterback had ever been drafted in the first round of the NFL up until then. Uh, he, he went to the Bucks, had success there for five years, made the playoffs three times, uh, again, in an era where there were very few African-Americans playing quarterback in the NFL. James Harris was the only other one when Doug came into the league. Uh, and then walked away from football uh, because the Bucks weren't willing to, to pay him the way he thought he should be paid. He was the 54th highest-paid quarterback in the league as a five-year starter in 1982. And went home. He had a, a young daughter. His wife had died of brain cancer when his daughter was less than a year old. Uh, and taught for a year, taught, taught high school, uh, and then went back to the USFL and got a phone call from Joe Gibbs, who by then was in Washington as the head coach, saying, are you willing to come back to the NFL as a backup? And by then, Doug knew he wanted to play football. And, and he went back as the, as the backup to Jay Schrader. Schrader got hurt. Doug took over, kept the job, and you know the rest of the story, became the first African-American to start and win a Super Bowl and was the Super Bowl MVP that year in 1988 when the Washington beat the, the Denver Broncos. And uh, Doug told me a great story about walking off the field because he had to come out of the game briefly in the first quarter because he took a really hard hit on his ankle. And he came and went back in even though he was hobbling a little bit and threw four touchdown passes in the second quarter. 
And when he came off the field holding the MVP trophy, his college coach, the great Eddie Robinson, was in the tunnel. And he said, I just want you to know, I'm not proud of you for that trophy. I'm not proud of you for the touchdown passes. I'm proud of you because you got back up and went back in the game and showed how tough you are. And that's an underrated part of being a quarterback, being, being physically tough, because they take hit after hit. Even though it doesn't look like that big a deal, it is a big deal. No doubt about that. And on the note of Doug Williams winning that Super Bowl and the MVP trophy as well in Super Bowl Twenty Two, you do actually question the validity of the term Super Bowl quarterback in this book. What does that label mean to you? Well, I mean, obviously, we all know the quarterbacks who've won the Super Bowl. We all know quarterbacks who played in the Super Bowl. Um, but, you know, do we think that Trent Dilfer is a better quarterback than Dan Marino because he won a Super Bowl and Dan Marino didn't? Now, look, when you win five the way Tom Brady did, when you win four the way Joe Montana and and um, Terry Bradshaw did, that says something. I mean, it says you're part of a good team, but it also says you're a pretty darn good quarterback. But there have been a lot of very good quarterbacks who have either never played in a Super Bowl or never won a Super Bowl. I think Alex Smith is a very good quarterback. He never got to play in a Super Bowl. He probably would have his last year in San Francisco if he hadn't been concussed and Colin Kaepernick hadn't taken over the team and played as well as he did in his place. But he has not started a Super Bowl. I don't think that means he hasn't been a successful quarterback in the NFL. And as I said, there have been other quarterbacks who maybe aren't so great who have played and won Super Bowls. Mark Griffin comes to mind, too. It's less likely to happen nowadays because of the rules that make being able to pass the football so important. But look who was the winning Super Bowl last, Super Bowl quarterback last year, Nick Foles, who was basically signed off the scrap heap by the Eagles just as insurance for Carson Wentz, and it turned out he was a pretty darn good insurance policy. No doubt about that. Speaking of Philly, you spend a couple of pages dispelling the popular thought that Philadelphia isn't a great sports town. What's the real story behind Eagles fans booing and throwing snowballs at Santa Claus on December 15th, 1968? Well, it it is true that they booed Santa Claus. And it did happen, as you said, in 1968. It was the last game of the season. They were playing in old Franklin Field. Uh, The team was terrible. They were 2-11. Uh, going into the last game of the season. It was snowing that day. It was miserable. Um, the Eagles had scheduled a halftime uh, 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 halftime entertainment that involved Santa Claus. The Santa Claus didn't show up, sort of like the start of the movie Miracle on 34th Street. Don't know if he was drunk or what, but he didn't show up. They pulled a guy out of the stands who was in a Santa Claus outfit, and he started parading around the field, you know, trying to be Santa Claus. And the fans were just not happy with what was going on in the world. And one person threw a snowball. And when other fans realized that somebody had thrown a snowball, they chimed in and began throwing snowballs at at the guy who became a celebrity in Philadelphia. And, in fact, years later, when the 76ers staged a a, a night where they were going to have the most Santa Clauses ever in one building, (laughs) he was asked to be a part of it. And when he was introduced as the guy who had been booed in 1968, 
the fans booed him just to show that nothing had changed 30 years later. Love that. Uh, now, uh, you didn't put a ton of focus into the Philadelphia quarterback situation, although you do a good job of talking about different quarterbacks throughout the 2017 season. I'm curious to know, amongst the five guys that you did focus on with last season, if you could take any one of those guys coming out of college as a rookie, of course, and build a franchise around any of those five, who would it be and why? Well, I think it would be a toss-up probably between Andrew Luck and Doug Williams. Uh, I think Doug Williams coming out of college, uh, if he'd been white, probably would have been the number one pick in the draft. I mean, he he was six foot four, had an unbelievable arm, and I think if his career hadn't bounced around the way it did, he would have been a true star in the NFL. Andrew Luck came into a team that had gone two and fourteen. Uh, the previous year, that's why they had the first round draft pick because Peyton Manning had gotten hurt, the number one pick, and they went eleven and five in his rookie year, and went eleven and five his first three years until he got hurt. He too has everything you want in a quarterback. He's big, six foot five. He's smart. He's got a great arm. His arm seems to be better now after dealing with that shoulder issue all of last season. Um, I, I think Alex Smith was certainly destined to be a, a, a very good quarterback. Ryan Fitzpatrick, of course, is an amazing story that he was the 250th pick in the draft and has played in the NFL uh, for 14 years. And Joe Flacco's been a very good quarterback. But if you ask me that question, it'd be a toss-up between Williams and, and Locke. Now, you can't cover the 2017 NFL season without at least mentioning or, or talking a little bit about the national anthem protests that were a right. part of last year. Although you do report that Doug Williams, the front office exec for the Redskins, did not kneel at the apex of this movement, which is totally understandable. I don't recall reading what he had to say about the movement. Did you ask him about that? If so, yeah. what did he have to say? Yeah. I, well, I asked, I asked all these guys uh, about how they felt, and it was interesting because the white quarterbacks felt very torn for their African-American teammates because they felt talking to them that they were kind of caught in the middle in the sense that a lot of African-Americans were going to look at them as betraying them if they didn't deal uh, because it was a racial issue, let's face it. Uh, and a lot of white, white people and some African-Americans were going to see them as betraying the country by not standing for the anthem. So they were caught between a rock and a hard place. I think Doug, Doug works for Dan Snyder, as you know. Mm-hmm. And Dan Snyder was a big supporter of Trump, gave him a million dollars in campaign contributions. And he felt kind of caught in the middle about it, that he didn't want to upset his boss. I mean, his boss could have fired him if, if he chose to kneel. And the, normally, of course, general managers, and that's what Doug is, he's a general manager, even though he doesn't have the title, aren't on the field before a game. So he was up in the press box virtually every game and did stand for the anthem uh, because I I don't think he wanted to offend his owner and because he, like a lot of people, I think had mixed emotions about it all. Totally understandable and uh, definitely don't put anything ludicrous uh, past Dan Snyder either. He is John Feinstein, uh, great journalist and author. The new book is Quarterback Inside the Most Important Position in the National Football League. You can buy it now wherever books are sold. John, thank you so much for the time today. Really enjoyed the conversation. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.